Welcome to She Brigade, the podcast. I'm your host, Belun Klemsemeche. On this podcast, we bring you amazing trailblazing women to come and share their life and career journeys with you. From entrepreneurs to nine to fivers, join us as each guest takes you through all of the highs and all of the lows of their journeys that have led them to being who they are today. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of She Brigade. Today's guest is Karabo Mokonyan. Karabo has committed her career to advancing social justice and socioeconomic freedom through advocacy and campaigning, groundwork, research, advisory, and high-level project coordination. She graduated from Wits University with an LLB and is currently working as a candidate attorney for a top South African law firm. Karabo has worked with the British Council, UNESCO, and so many more organizations, and is also currently the African Youth Ambassador for Peace with the African Union. She steers gender equity, with Ceci Fellowship and Skills Hub as a program director too. Karabo was named one of Cosmopolitan Magazine's Next Generation Women Voices in Africa and is a Melon Guardian Top 200 Young South African recipient. Karabo is a young, passionate powerhouse. So tune in to hear all about her journey and her work. Let's dive in. Hey Karabo, welcome to the show. Hi Pilu, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you on the show. And... On this show, we like to start all the way from the beginning. So I want you to take us all the way back, all the way back to younger Karabo. What was your childhood like, your schooling like, all of that. Okay. Okay, so I'm from a small village in Limpopo called Sweetiela. Um, to be precise, Moroto is a specific community. So I'm, I always refer to myself as a rural girl at heart because even after you know migrating to Johannesburg, I still have those rural aspects to myself that I'm not even willing to let go of. <laughs> um, so I was initially raised by my great grandmother and mainly because my mom had me at a very young age. So she was still at high school and obviously she had to go back and finish it. So my great grandmother decided that she's willing to step in. And mm. I loved my great grandmother, I still love her. I mean, um, she contributed to my raising at the beginning. And once my mom then found her feet, I moved to Johannesburg because, you know, a lot of black people migrate to Johannesburg, you know, in the name of looking for greener pastures. And that's what Definitely. my family did. <laughs> yeah, my family did that. And luckily, the greener pastures definitely um, did come about as a result of the hard work, but also challenges as well. And I think from there, um, I then started realizing that because I'm firstborn, um, there's a lot of independence. There's a lot of, I need to define a, a lot of my journey on my own. Um, and because I had the background of, you know, seeing things like rural life and you know, urban life in Johannesburg, I realized all these negative social ills that exist in society, the inequality, the sexism, the racism, and all these different things. And I guess that then just led to me getting into my own independent life in terms of getting into social development. Um, and I started at a really young age and then just blew up eventually. Um, I mean, I started my nonprofit first year, in first year mm. and that nonprofit didn't really work out. It failed. And I think from that nonprofit, I am grateful that it failed because I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't have learned the things that I've learned and I wouldn't be able to start another initiative that is quite successful. So I think failure is so important in the process in order for lessons to be learned. So that specific organization then led to a lot of things in terms of um, my career outside of South Africa, but also I found a way to merge it with my studies. So I studied law at WITS and I found a way to merge the two careers through 
you know, the linkage of human rights. So social development is definitely, you know, poverty and all the things, but law can has an aspect of human rights and, you know, protecting people. And I found a way to merge the two and I define my career journey as law and leadership. Mm. And, and, and I think it's so important for me to find a merger. Otherwise it's, yeah, it's a mess when it comes to merging the two because they both require attention. But I think beyond that, I think a lot of my journey is defined my, by my independence. Um, I can't even say that, you know, family was directly involved in my journey. I think they were there, yes. But I think a lot of it stemmed from external influences of people struggling. Mm. And that for me was sufficient for me to get into specific industries and yeah, want to make an impact. Mm, okay. So I just want to know when you started your, your first nonprofit, mm-hmm. what was the goal? Why did you start it? Um, yeah. What, what was there a trigger that led you into this work specifically? Or was it like you said, just you experiencing these, ex- these things happening around you and being like, I have to do something about it. So I think it's both. So I think it's it's a double whammy. So the first one is things happening around me. But I think also my own experience in terms of, so like I said, we we migrated and came to Johannesburg. So mm. the nonprofit was called Letablo Africa, and it was based on poverty alleviation in informal settlements. Be- because I realized that a lot of us come to Johannesburg obviously looking for greener pastures, but not everybody ends up getting those greener pastures that we came for. Mm. And because I was close to, you know, the city of Johannesburg, like I I started seeing a lot of informal settlements forming on the outskirts. And for me, it was always that thing of, I could have been in that position. Mm. You know, we all came into the city looking for, you know, better livelihoods, but some of us didn't get into those better livelihoods. It could have been any one of us who, you know, comes from Imakaya to say, we're looking for greener pastures. Only those who, I don't know, are lucky enough to get opportunities or get a better life. So that for me was quite painful in that, you know, it could have been me. And mm. I mean, it, these are informal settlements. They regard it as illegal uh, places to stay at. So government doesn't really help these spaces. They regard it as, you know, service service provision is not even a thing in informal settlements. So I wanted to do my fair share. And yeah, that's what triggered the formation of Tabula Africa. But I think also I've always wanted to be in social development. I've seen nonprofits and I wanted to start something like this at high school level. But oh. I was like, oh my gosh, I... I, I proposed it to my dad and it's like, oh, it's going <laughs> to, I'm going to have to end up managing it for you. And I mean, it makes sense at that time. It didn't make sense, but now it made sense because I mean, nonprofit work is a lot of work. Yeah. You know, I'm so glad you said that, you know, I can relate to what you're saying because I often think about my journey. Right. And I'm like, who I am now and what I am now honestly yes I played a role but it's not really my doing like any it could have gone the other way Mm. and that's also why I I tried to use the fact that I now have access to all these resources to create platforms like she brigade I'm like yeah I think about the fact that okay I can create a platform I can afford to buy microphones whatever it is get Mm. the tools to be the person to deliver these messages. So I think that's so important. I mean, it's not that it's an obligation that you should have to, because you've made it, now you must go back. But I do think that that is something that personally I relate with and is very important to think about once you, once you, once you make it to a certain point in your life, in your journey, in your career, just consider the fact that you know, you made it, but not everybody actually can make it for for many reasons. Some that are completely out of people's control. Absolutely, mm, I can one hundred percent relate to that. Okay, so you you studied bachelor of laws, right? Uh, so I, yeah, I studied bachelor of laws and an LLB. Yeah. Yes, yes. So 
you mentioned that there is the human rights aspect um, in law, but why did you still pick that degree specifically? Because I mean, there's there's many um, degrees that can help you help you in this regard, right? Um, what was it about law that attracted you to it specifically? Um, I think it was basically the other way around. Like, I think law was attracted to me right oh. now. <laughs> because, um, I mean, I'm one of those people who's gone through so many career considerations. Medicine, architecture, film director, even if there's no linkage, I've just gone through the whole bunch because I can see myself in a lot of them. <laughs> um, but I think when I, and I actually decided this in December, um, just the year before I started uh, varsity in Feb. Sure. Because, I mean, I had medicine and then I had like a Bachelor of Science. Science was actually my thing because I at high school, I was a science kid. And I then started sitting down, looking at all the courses I got accepted for and introspecting because I started realizing that it was more of an alignment than anything. Mm-hmm. So... There were two main reasons that I feel like law was like, come, come here, come this side. And firstly, it was my personality. So I have quite a strong personality in terms of, you know, being well-spoken, liking research, liking writing. The things that most lawyers, the qualities that most lawyers actually have or should have. And I felt like, okay, I'm really well um, positioned for this. I mean, even in high school, I would find myself being outspoken against things that are wrong. So Mm. I don't know how many teachers I've probably argued with, (laughs) but I was that person who was okay with saying, no, you can't do this. It's actually wrong. You know, despite the fact that there's obviously this person's an adult, I always prioritize right and wrong. And where it was just obvious right and wrong, like you potentially you know, abusing somebody else. It's like I needed to speak out against that. Mm. Um, So it was that aspect of my personality. But I think the other one was really a life experience that changed my entire life. It was a femicide situation in my family. Um, It was my aunt precisely. And I was there to see the entire event. Mm. And... As traumatic as it was, I feel like it was very much, it, it then built a lot of questioning in my mind because I'd question things like, okay, cool, he's arrested, but why is the case taking so long? You know, like he got arrested, I think, five after five years of the uh. event. And I'd question and be like, okay, you know what? Why is it taking so long? Why is it? when there's so much evidence, so much going on. And I'm like, "Mm," you know, so I think my questioning and my curiosity then made me want to get into law to say, you know, let me understand the system, but let me get into the space. Also understanding that maybe the systems are flawed as well, Mm -hmm. and they may need to be changed for us to have um, better systems in place to serve people on the ground. Because I mean, from an outside perspective, I'm definitely going to be impatient. I'm definitely going to want to know. And I, I, when I hear people say the law's failing us, I can't even sit and argue and say, oh, no, guys, please understand. There's processes, there's whatsoever. Because rightfully so, there's certain things that can be changed within the system itself. And I think those sort of questions then just led me into studying law. And I guess at the time, when it comes to BCom, I kind of had no choice because Vitz had discontinued the straight LLB at the time. It was during the review of the LLBs of the different universities. And Vitz decided to do BCom law, BA law, before you can even do an LLB. And I just chose BCom. I mean, the choice was just out of, you know, maybe me having vast knowledge in terms of commercial as because I've never done commercial stuff. I was I did science at high school and I, I felt like my social development journey would teach me a lot of the stuff that is available within the BA discourse. So I felt like, you know, let me learn more. Let me widen my thing, my, my, my knowledge. And I did the BCom and then did the LLB. But the ultimate target was definitely the LLB. Mm. 
Ja. Okay, wow. Um, that's very interesting because I love that you were, you, like things happened and you started questioning them, but through the questioning, you actually thought, no, let me, let me try and understand first so that I can rightfully question, not that it's not right to question, but mm. I can question from a more informed position and potentially even drive change. Right. Yeah. So let's, 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 let's take it a little bit back again. I mean, you mentioned that well before we started recording the podcast you mentioned to me that you just recently started your corporate career which was very interesting to you because i was like wait so you did all of these things with your international work in varsity yes <laughs> i was like I wait what <laughs> that that's crazy so can you just take us through how you how you've gotten involved with certain organizations yeah start start take us through that journey all the way from the beginning of it okay so um it's be, before the NPO, there were ambitions for me to study abroad. I always wanted to study abroad. So then I started searching for scholarships and information. And that's when I eventually came across platforms for leadership opportunities. You know, through my search of scholarships, I then discovered to the other side of leadership, programming, the UN, the AU, and then I, I started being intrigued. But then when first year came, I then realized, okay, I'm not going abroad. I'm going to be stuck in South Africa. Um, and it's not even a thing of, because without scholarships, I wouldn't have gone either way because, I mean, financial need is another thing. Um, so then I started the NPO my first year, it worked out for about like two years. We did things, we went to informal settlements, we helped people apply digitally. It was quite great with the kind of impact that it was able to make. But I think also it was quite, it was quite eye-opening in that, for example, there was a community we worked with called Mangolongolo. It's a, an informal settlement in Johannesburg. And I think when I personally went into the community and we wanted to do something, I realized how bad it is, how poverty is really terrible. I mean, initially when we came in, the community members thought we were government. They thought we were government, they wanted to chase us away. Yeah. And they felt like, you know what, we're taking their jobs because some people had been fired by one of the um, waste companies mm. government is, yeah, is in line with. And we were doing a cleaning because a lot of informal settlements are really, you know, dirty and the, the environment is not conducive, you know, mm. for living in. So we're doing a cleaning type of thing. We're cleaning the community. And there were, there were so angry and comments like we keep voting and nothing is happening to us we're coming up and things like we want jobs we're coming up and even beyond the words itself people were wearing you know the free political party t-shirts and that for me just spoke volumes to where we at where we still need to go and how a lot of our communities still have a long way to go to advance ourselves. So for me, that experience then triggered me to want to do so much more because we have a lot of communities that are broken because of poverty. Mm. So the organization then went on for two years and within the two years, I then started thinking, okay, now it's time for me to start applying for these international opportunities because these international opportunities would usually want you to have some form of experience because you know you can't just wake up start applying for leadership opportunities and go abroad to represent the voices of communities on the ground that you've potentially never worked with mm. it only mm -hmm. makes sense for you to work with people on the ground and when you go abroad you then representing true reflections of what our societies look like I then applied for my first opportunity. I've applied so many times. So it's not like you apply once and then boom, an opportunity <laughs> comes <in>. about. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know how many opportunities I've applied for. And out of those, only like a few came out and those were good enough to, you know, set me off. 
I can even I, like I wouldn't even be lying if I could say I've applied for about 500 stuff. Sure. Um, so it's one of those spaces <laughs> whereby I think I then started realizing I'm not just applying for any sort of opportunity. I'm applying for a global opportunity where other global kids are also applying and I'm competing on a global level. And it's not like I'm competing with South Africans, you know, where maybe it's like 10 million people that I'm competing with um, from the pool of people who'd potentially apply. I'm applying with people abroad who, you know, Oh, quite a lot. Could be one billion <laughs> other people. And yeah, I then started realizing that I need to improve my ways of applying, um, making sure that I show off basically in terms of what I'm capable of, what I can bring to the table. And my first opportunity then came with um, UNESCO to go to South Korea. That was the opportunity that actually set me off in terms of the international leadership career. But it was it was a milestone to get into that opportunity because number one, it was my first ever time leaving the country, first time ever on a flight, mm-hmm. first time just getting into you know other experiences. And it was a, it was a journey and a half because okay, for example, I I my flight left me. It was so painful because oh I'm like, gosh. finally <laughs> my time and my flight leaves me. And and it was just like five minutes late. They were not willing. They were, I was like, oh my gosh. And my mentor then decided he's going to pay for the fees. Oh, wow. And that then changed my life. And I was like, wow, I'm going to South Korea. I'm going to be on my first plane and my life is about to change. And I was so excited and from there after I then other opportunities started coming. I then got accepted for Yali. I got accepted for other opportunities like the 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 UN Security Council then wanted to consult with young people for the youth peace and security resolution. And I was part of that. And more then started coming. I went to the UK for drivers for change with the British Council but I think then I started getting tired of like one week programs three days programs because I felt like okay there's no continuity after that Mm. I mean they may have like alumni programs here and there but it's just not sufficient because I'm trying to build an entire career within the space um I started feeling like yeah I have enough training I have enough knowledge I get it, you know, at, at, at a point, I started being tired of the travel. I mean, it was exciting, you know, travel whatsoever, but it was like, it's not, it's just travel for the purposes of going to learn something and then coming back. Um, I think I'm, I, I, I have enough knowledge basically to take me on. And that's where I decided that I'm going to start applying for positions now, as opposed to just programs. Ah, okay. And then the, I saw a, the UN FPA's youth advisory, you know, call for application. So UNFPA's United Nations Population Fund, and they deal with things like youth health, you know, GBV, HIV, um, sexual and reproductive health and rights. So those sort of health-related type of social development work, but from a youth narrative. So they wanted youth advisory panelists who would advise, who would speak to, you know, policymakers, government, other advise them as the UN regarding programming that is more suitable for young people. I applied for that, I got it, and I guess that then started opening up other opportunities. Uh, the UNFP position was for two years, um, it was so great because it then exposed me to a lot of things. And I think through that process, I then realized that women empowerment is my thing from the perspective of nonprofits. And that's when I decided to close Letabla Africa and get into a more special niche mm. um, because I would be exposed to the realities of, you know, being a woman and the systematic oppressions that we have to go through. And I, I then decided to start another NPO. Hopefully, that one will survive. <laughs> um, 
and that was Ceci Fellowship and Skill Hub. So basically Ceci, which means sister. And it works around, you know, advocacy and campaigning in relation to gender equality, but also mentorship for adolescent girls and skill development for just women who find themselves in, you know, disadvantaged circumstances like young mothers who had to drop out or just unemployed women or, you know, those sort of situations. Mm. And I think last year or the other year, COVID, the COVID year just, it seems like it didn't exist. <laughs> so the other, 2019, the African Union then called for applications for their Youth Peace and Security Department because they wanted youth ambassadors for peace. I saw the application during the extended time. So I didn't even see the application at the beginning when it was the initial, you know, call for application. I saw it during its extended period. Um, and I'm like, okay, should I apply? Should I not apply? I then closed. So it was like an email. Um, it was a, an email listing. I'm, I signed up for the youth invoice emails. So I got the email. It was a reminder to say, okay, it has been extended. I questioned and then I closed it. I'm like, nah, this is not for me because I couldn't relate to youth peace and security. Mm. When I hear peace and security, I'm just thinking, Bombs flying, guns everywhere, <laughs> military. And I'm like, my country is not in that sort of situation. And then fine. I then, they sent another reminder, I think five days before. And then I, I was like, okay, let me just do it. And then I opened the application, started. And then some of the questions, I was like, is this really for me? And then I stopped. I stopped, I closed it. I'm like, nah, that's not for me. And then a day before another reminder came. Okay, decided to just continue. I'm like, what What would I lose if I get it or I don't? It's okay, because I can't even relate to peace and security anyway. Um, I then submitted and I got the call for, well, email. Got an email inviting me for the interview and assessment session in Ethiopia. But at the same time, when I saw it, I was in the middle of exams. So it was November and I'm in the middle of final exams. And I'm like, I do not know what to do. I had to then make a decision regarding deferring some exams. And yeah, it was a whole journey. But then, then I got selected for it. Mm. I think when I was only there at the interview, that's when I realized what peace and security would mean for somebody like me who comes from countries that do not have physical war. Um, and ours is more, you know, cultural and systematic type of war or type of conflict. Mm. We're talking your gender-based violence is an issue of peace and security. As long as my peace is disturbed, it's a peace and security issue. Unemployment as well, corruption. I then started aligning it. And I think when I got to the AU, it, it, it was more clear to me. And, you know, I mean, there were learning sessions here and there. And I, I kind of had to make sure my voice was well projected in terms of this is what it means for me. I can't come here and now start talking violent extremists, you know, Boko Haram, the likes. That I can't relate to, but you guys must be aware that these are the kind of things that we experience in this specific region and our voices equally matter within these peace and security spaces and we are here and you must just take us. And I think from there, things started just, you know, aligning for me when it comes to peace and security because when I got into the room and I mean, the assessment, the assessment was really rigorous. It was as if I was applying for some, you know, public protective position because it was recorded. It was live interviews. We all questioned in the same room. It mm. was so hectic. I was so nervous because I thought I'm not well positioned for peace and security. If they ask me, what is violent extremism? I'm going to sit there and be like, um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I really don't know. Um but I think I went into that room understanding that, number one, I got ex I got accepted in an extension period in almost the last day of submission. And I was the youngest in the room. So I think that was another fear for me. I was the youngest in the room. 
I didn't disclose my age, so I made sure that I keep quiet and just talk, be confident. Only at the end when they realize I'm the youngest person in the room, because I was 22 at the time, that's when they were surprised because then amongst in the entire room, I got the highest points. And I was oh, like, wow. okay, for somebody who, number one, doubted her peace and security knowledge and experiences, but as somebody who comes from a country that doesn't have physical war, I guess I have something to contribute to the peace and security space and bring a different narrative that is. And I found myself, I, I then firmed myself and made sure that, you know what, this is me and this is my alignment and I'm here. And I made sure that during in the first year with COVID, I then started, you know, putting myself out there, being at webinars, you know, contributing to, you know, articles and doing a lot to put myself out there as a peace and security, but also a gender um, activist. And I guess those sort of experiences aligned in terms of where I wanted to position myself. Because, I mean, the reality is we can't help with everything. So I, I can't mm. be like climate activist one minute, peace and security activist. You can, but I think it's always great to align yourself so that when people come to you, they know what they're coming for. So then I started positioning myself as a gender activist, but also as a peace and security activist, because there's the women peace and security agenda, youth peace and security agenda. And I think gender is just something I enjoy very much. Um, yeah, and I guess from there, just things started unfolding, um, you know, got invited to speak at the UN Security Council, which was such a big deal, um, and the AU Peace and Security Council. And I mean, there were a lot of missed opportunities because of COVID in terms of traveling. But I mean, it was just a matter of making the most out of what was possible at the time. Mm. And that was just being available when people would ask me for webinars, people would ask me for interviews, people would ask me for things. And I think I'm here now. And yeah, it's it's been a journey and a half, but I'm hoping now that, you know, I, I'm, I went for positions, but a lot of it was voluntary. I think after this year, I then want to transition into um, professional paid work for social development. Mm. Yo, that's insane. <laughs> you answered quite a few of the questions that I had, because one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, about your position as the ambassador for peace. I'm like, because what you described is what I also in my head think of when I think of, oh, the AU working for peace. I'm thinking bombs, <laughs> you know, attacks on buildings, all these things. But yeah, yeah. like you said, it's something we can't necessarily relate to as South Africans. Um, so thank you for clarifying that. You know, I never thought of it from that perspective if it disturbs your peace it's a peace and security issue mm. and we literally going through so much just as women as also even your, the gender piece that you mentioned just as women in south africa we are going through so much yeah there is conflict even even though it's not necessarily framed in the same way as other countries absolutely mm, that is incredible your journey is actually quite incredible um Thank you. so <laughs> so tell me I want to know from you, like, so you, like you mentioned, you were applying for programs initially. So you started with programs and then you went for positions. Tell me what are the, some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? Um, something that can help someone who's trying to go in to do what, you, what you're doing. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned from the programs and from your position thus far? Okay, so I think the first thing is really you need to go out to seek the information because the space is so closed. So it's one of those spaces whereby, for example, if I know if the AU is looking for people, you know, I'll share it with my friends and potentially other young people will never see it, you know. Mm. So it's one of those very closed spaces. Sometimes it's, and, and it's not that it's right or it's okay, but sometimes it's about who you know it's about also how you then market yourself and how we potentially can see you. Um, it's also just about where you find information. You really need to go out. My parents are not in the space at all. You know, my parents are not in the space. So I can't even say I'm feeding off my parents. My dad is in, um, you know, the IT space himself. My mom is more in the marketing space. 
I wanted something and I had to find, you know, it was me just Googling and eventually I found platforms like Opportunities, Opportunity for Africans and then started asking people when I started meeting, where can I find opportunities whatsoever? So it's a matter of you going out and seeking these sort of opportunities because they won't come to you Mm. because of the nature of the space. It's very enclosed. I mean, it's quite similar to the governance space whereby you see a lot of the jobs, a lot of the tenders, a lot of those sort of things go to friends, go to people who know people. It's it's one of those very enclosed spaces. And not that it's like favoritism or anything. It's it's very open in terms of you can anybody can apply. But it's a matter of who knows about those things. Mm. That's where the biggest gap is. The more people know, obviously the more applications would have but a lot of the times it's limited because we don't know who to go to and, you know. So I think that that's the first thing. If you want something, try. Follow relevant organizations if you have to. Follow the right people if you have to. Um, I think social media has obviously made it easier for us. Um, I, I personally sometimes see a lot of opportunities now on social media because of who I follow. Yeah. So that's another aspect of, you know, who you follow could take you to the right people. I follow a lot of organizations. I follow Girls Not Brides. I follow Civicus. And they also post opportunities on their own platforms. But if you don't follow them, then obviously you're never going to know. If you don't have the right people in your circle who will share those opportunities, again, you will never know. So you need to really seek out those sort of opportunities because there's a lot of them. Um, And people may think the space is very exclusive, but there's a lot of opportunities. But a lot of us just don't know about them. So I would say seek out information um, and approach. Sometimes it's also about approach. So if you want to volunteer, it's just, you know, email organization. Hi, guys, I really want to volunteer. Is there opportunities? If not, can you guys please at least recommend organizations for me to work at? And that's how you then start, you know, getting exposed to organizations, getting exposed to things within the space. Once you're in, you'll always be in. You'll always know people. You'll always mm. get opportunities. You know, for example, yesterday I posted something on my story. The African Union is looking for young people to train in transitional justice. If you don't know me, you're probably never going to see it. If yeah. you don't know one of the AU advisory reports, you're probably just never going to see it because it's exclusively on the AU website. Not everybody just randomly goes to the African Union website looking for things. So it's, it's really about seeking opportunities, looking for things. And I think the second one is really about self-belief and a willingness to grow and learn. So a lot of people, when they get in the space, obviously they have some form of you know ground experience and it's either we're there to fight, to you want to be heard all the time and whatsoever. I think sometimes it's okay to sit and be open to learning from those who have been there. Um, and I, I think that's something I personally did in the first aspects of my journey. I'd use, I used to just sit there and be quiet. I mean, it was on top of just being nervous and, th- and overthinking <laughs> my answers or whatever. But I think it helped in that I know so much now and I can confidently say a lot because I took the time to listen, to be the quiet one at some point. So I think a willingness to learn must be something really, you know, entrenched. But also self-belief is so important because we, especially if you're getting into an industry that doesn't have very much representative and representative identity. So when you walk in a place and you're either the only woman, walk in a place, you're the only black person, you walk into a place, you know, you're the only queer person. So it's that sort of thing whereby you need to understand that you might be working in a space whereby there is no identity representation and you need to have that confidence to drive that. Um, So for example, I'd find myself in places where maybe I'm the only woman Mm. and obviously that that's that's a job that's a huge responsibility because if you're the only woman in a space it means that now you're representing all the other women that should be in that space that are not there if you're the only black person it means that you're responsible for representing all the black people that could potentially be in that place so when i'd find myself in that space i'd often you know and and it's not that it's right because you need to work 
harder, you know, to be visible, to be heard, to be. But when you get into such spaces, you then take on the responsibility to represent. I think it's yes, a responsibility, but I think it's also a privilege because it could have been anyone to represent the voices, to take on, you know, that identity into the space and make people understand that we deserve to be here and more of us are going to be here outside of me being a representative of these specific identities. So I had to always just come back, be confident, be firm as well, not just go with the flow because in such a space, if for example, I'm sitting with just men, if men say, okay, guys, we're going to decide on this. We're going to have some policy and this policy doesn't even consider gender dynamics. You need to be the one that's, comes in and says, no, guys, I'm not happy with this because it doesn't really represent, you know, the gender intersectionality aspect of things. Yeah. And so it, it, and it requires so much, you know, self-belief and confidence for you to get to that level. It's not easy at all, but you need to try and grow towards having that self-belief so that when you get into the space, you are able to be heard and actually make the impact that you want to make. Um, I think the one thing as well is, you know, and I used to be impressed by it, but I think we need to move away from it where being the first woman, being the only woman, being the only black person is such a great achievement. I think we need to move away from that because now we we start just sitting in that whole thing of, oh, first woman to get in the space, great. But the reality is after you leave, nobody, no other black woman is going to represent. So I think we need to get into a space of, as you get into a space, open up for more identities mm-hmm. because... <laughs> I mean, it's it's really great. So I'm a first woman whatsoever, but it's really not that great for me personally. It's not that great to walk into a room and I'm the only black woman. Yeah. What would be even nicer is getting in. There's another black woman. I'm like, yo, girl, you know what? <laughs> ah, these guys, I can't relate. You know, knowing that it's sort of like a force. There are two of us. It's a force, and we're going in at it together to open up for more people, as opposed to you there sitting, potentially getting ignored, potentially not just being there and not really advancing any changes. Then when you leave, there's no other identities left. Yeah. So I think we should move away from, you know, yes, it's it's great to have the first of something, but I think it shouldn't be as glamorized as it is at this point in time. I think we should now be glamorizing people who've opened up for more people of different identities to come in. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another thing. But I think the lesson, another, like one other lesson would be just to, I guess it feeds off the being firm. Because for me, for example, I have um, three identities that often are quite discriminated within the space. And that is being black, but also being a woman, but also being young. Yeah. So it was like a whole fight for me to sit on tables and be like, guys, you're going to listen to me and we're going to, you know, have this sort of thing. It took a while. And I guess that's why I also would keep quiet when I get into spaces because I'm like, is this good enough? Is this right? And I'd rehearse it in my head a thousand times until that section has potentially passed. And I can't say it anymore because, yeah. So it's little things like that where I had to really firm myself and make myself realize that I deserve to be in that space, whether it's because I'm such a great person in terms of my work or it's because I'm here because I need to represent. I think it's important either way. And I then started realizing my power. So realizing your power is is so essential to get into the space and actually succeed believing that you are worth being here, but believing that you're capable of bringing the change that you want to see within, you know, these sort of systems. And it took a while. I'm not, I'm not even going to say, get there, be confident, be, no, because it does take time. What you need to do is get yourself in these spaces. When they put you on the spot to host something, host it, because that's how you then grow. Mm-hmm. Um and then you will realize your power. And I think it's the best aspect of the journey when you realize your power. 
I love those. I absolutely love those. What are some of us, what are some sort of mistakes or missteps or failures that you've gone through? Well, you mentioned your nonprofit in, in the beginning, but what, what are some of the other uh, things that have gone wrong potentially and what did you learn from them? Um, okay. So the first one was that obviously get to the airport on time. <laughs> get to the airport on time. <laughs> yeah. I think since then I made sure that I never ever miss a flight. <laughs> Um, and I guess that on its own then made me realize the value of having a mentor um, because had it not been for my mentor, I really wouldn't have, you know, gone to South Korea, wouldn't mm. have potentially opened up this specific um, side of my life. So he definitely came through. Um, and I, I guess another lesson or I guess mishap was really me being quiet um like i said yes it added to the value of listening but i think it took away as well because i'm an overthinker so when i'm sitting there i'm thinking is my answer good enough is you know i'm then also taking away from i'm taking other people's opportunity to hear the great things that can come out of my mouth Mm. the great things that I have to offer that they potentially never think about. Because, for example, at the South Korea um, leadership program, there were not a lot of Africans, and there were not a, there was no Southern Africa representative as well. So, what would have been nice is for me to put myself out there, make it, make them realize that there's a different narrative and a different side to social issues. So, for example, when it comes to peace and security. There was a lot on, you know, violent extremism. And I couldn't relate, really. I really couldn't. And also at the time, there was conversations on, you know, environmental sustainability, climate change. And I also couldn't, I had ideas in my head, you know, for example, whenever people speak about, you know, environmental sustainability, climate change, I definitely value those sort of things because, but but sometimes I then sit them like, how do you expect people who are, hungry Mm. to prioritize picking up a paper so i felt like maybe bringing those sort of dynamics could have been valuable to say yes we can drive environmental sustainability but let's run it consecutively with poverty alleviation because if i'm now homeless in the street and you want me now to pick up papers be conscious of environmental harm that i'm potentially causing that's a stretch for me personally i feel like if I'm too hungry, I'm not even going to think about the environment mm. because human development hasn't taken place. You need to mm. develop human beings first before you can even, you know, expect them to responsibly take care of the environment. So I think such narratives, you know, I didn't really express, I didn't share. And those could have been valuable because they could have brought a different narrative. Mm. So I think that's why not speaking was one of those things where I feel like it was harmful, but I guess now I talk. Now I talk, whether it's stupid, whether it's far-fetched, I now always make sure that I'm heard because I bring a different narrative. And Mm. at every single table or room, different narratives are needed because that's how then you achieve a lot of inclusion in whatever it is that you're doing. Um, I think also the silence fed into also the sexism that would be experienced, the racism that would be experienced, because when you're silent and these things are happening, you know, you just, I guess, kind of become numb to it, but you're also allowing them to continuously manifest. So, for example, when working in the, on the African continent, I, I realized that, you know, there's still a lot of patriarchy. South Africa is quite advanced and South Africa is quite far as compared to the other countries. Mm. I mean, we, we still have things to do here, but as compared to the other countries, we are quite far. And there'd be times whereby, you know, I'd be in a space and a woman shouldn't speak. And it's those sort of things where I'm like, I was silent about, whereas I could have spoken and I could have potentially 
you know, set the way for women to speak who come after me. So I think those are little things where I'm like, mm, you know, those are the things and the mistakes that I made that I would like to change. Um, but hopefully I'm doing that now yeah. because I speak and I make sure that I always mention minorities and marginalized people within my conversations. Mm. And yeah. what has, because I, I mean, I need to ask you this, right? as someone working in this space, um, what has COVID-19 brought to light for you um, in the social development space? So from the peace perspective or just in general social development, what do you think COVID-19 has really brought um, to the forefront? In this okay, so, so I think that, number one, I'm even going to be honest, I hated COVID. I still hate it. <laughs> we all it, do. I hate it. <laughs> because I think initially as well, it it took a lot away from me from this perspective of this journey and, you know, things couldn't be done, impact couldn't be made. And I think I, I realized that human contact is so important for social development, sure. because if you want to develop human capital, you want to develop people in grassroots communities, you need to go to them. So it then made me realize of how far we need to go in terms of exclusion and inclusion. A lot of people were just left out from a lot of things because of the situation they are in or the circumstance that they're in. Access was so essential, especially access to technology was so essential during COVID. Otherwise you're left in the dark. Um, I mean, from just little things like the grant information, you know, the 350, mm. a lot of it was communicated on digital means, um, meaning that, you know, not everybody could have some form of information or access to it unless your, your community-based institutions did enough, of which most just didn't. They were just social distancing. So it made me realize the amount of work that needs to be done um, I think it also brought a fear in me in that, and I, not being negative at all, but in that, will we ever become better? Because I think in as much as trying to be positive in terms of, okay, we're going to do things for people. Then the corruption stuff was happening. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> where are, are we going? And it was like, if governance can't do that well, then I don't even know. I guess it will have to be social development, civil society that ultimately now looks into community development, but also civil society is very under-resourced. It's so hard to get nonprofit funding in South Africa. Mm. So little things like that. I think it's a worry for me in terms of where we go away. Do we still have people who genuinely want to see communities develop within the government space mm. from a power perspective. Because, yeah. I mean, I can get into government and be like, yes, for the people, for the people. But if I don't have that much power, my voice is really not that mm -hmm. useful. Um, so I guess COVID made me worried in that regard. I think I have more negatives to say than positives regarding what COVID did. Um <laughs> I think another thing that it did for me is made me realize how unprepared we are mm. or how little we have been doing for a lot of the social issues. Gender-based violence has been happening for years, but COVID somehow just brought it into media light and gave it the attention that it needed after all these years. And I guess that then exposed the weakness of our institutions, the weakness of our leadership to deal with things that have been happening. People have been hungry. People have been unemployed. That 350 could have happened a long time ago, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think COVID exposed the social issues that have been present but I think it further exposed the weakness of our institutions to handle these sort of things yeah. that human development has just not been happening. And, oh, it was so bad. I mean, COVID, it's still bad. I mean, but, yeah. But I think that the, the light of it is the fact that social development is present 
Um, I think what COVID did was put young people on the map, you know, from my narrative. For example, for the first time at the AU, we got to see six young people present for the Peace and Security Council, which has never, ever happened. It has just been one young person. Same thing with the UN Security Council. You always see one young person. We are now getting into a place where we starting to influence what's happening. Um, and I think COVID made it quite possible because young people are kind of forced to see things unfold and kind yeah. of feel powerless. Um, so a lot of it was engagement into dialogues, writing. I mean, for example, for the first time ever, I was aware of the parliament public hearings and I submitted for the gender-based violence, three bills. And I was like, oh, there's such a thing, you know? Mm. And same thing with the the board of NYDA. After they hired them, young people were the ones who were saying, no, you guys hired them incorrectly. And yeah, they dismantled it. And now they're in the process of re, um, you know, rehiring them and making a new core publication. They even mm-hmm. had to change the entire legislation. So I think that's where COVID came in from a positive narrative. Young people now are a little bit more aware of platforms, but also young people are taking initiative to say, guys, you said this, this is what's going to happen. If you're going to hire young people and put them in positions, you're not going to do it according to affiliations or you're not even going to do it because you just want to tick a box and say young people are here. We're here because we have substance to bring to the table. Mm. I also think that, you know, with all the negatives that you mentioned, in some ways it's not such a bad thing that all these negatives Mm. happened because... When were when were we when were these things gonna come to light? You know, mm. I mean, look, it's unfortunate that this is where we are, but I do think that, in a from a different perspective, these things are here now, and thank goodness that it's that the the the, the weaknesses, like you mentioned, are now more exposed, and thank goodness mm. that now we are fully aware of what is actually being done and where we are lacking. Because um, when would we have come to this place if, like you're saying, these things have always existed? We just haven't really been aware of the weakness. When when was this going to happen? So yeah. I think it is important for you know people like you to highlight these negatives that these these sad draining things that COVID is just making us aware of. Because mm. if we're aware of it, then hopefully we can only hope that something will be done now that we know. I agree with you. Mm. I think awareness is so important. Awareness, mm. definitely. I I think some people even, for example, when people kind of um they 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 look down upon like for example they call them keyboard activists you know the social media um awareness campaigns i think those are so essential for awareness i think there's so much power in awareness and i think you're right also in saying that you know because they're in the dark now we know you know Mm -hmm. i mean we've always known but i think now there's a more awareness from a conversation perspective. We can have conversations. We can, it's in our faces now. You yeah. can't ignore it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, Karabo, this is my favorite part of the podcast now. We, okay. I get to ask my favorite question. The question comes from my favorite quote, which is, be who you needed when you were younger. Um, I believe that when we were younger, there is someone that we would have wanted to see or something that we would have wanted to hear. Um, and if we needed that when we were younger, whether or not we were conscious of it, if we needed that when we were younger, there's someone out there today that can use that message. So I want to know from you, if you could go back and talk to a young, to younger Karabo, what would you say to her? This is younger you at any age, but it could be you in high school, you in starting your varsity journey, you going for your interviews. What would you say to her? Okay, so I would, let me just give a little bit of context, because obviously, maybe the context would really help. So it's young, young, young me, who's back in in rural Limpopo. Um, and in terms of the community itself, the context is, there's a lot of teenage pregnancy, there's a lot of alcoholism, you know, young people coming out of such a community is rare. You know, mm-hmm. you if you if none of those things have got a hold of you, you are extremely lucky. And if you can get out of such community, such a community, you are even, even more lucky. So I think I would advise somebody who is in a rural, who is in that sort of context, 
who is close to the pressures of potentially not having the kind of life that they may want to have. Um, I would really tell this person to really try and understand who they are from the perspective of purpose and identity um, in the context of being in, in a space where you potentially, it, it's not a conducive environment for you. Things like focus, things like understanding where you want to go, things like understanding who you are as an individual are so essential. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's so easy to lose yourself or at least gain an aspect that you potentially don't want or that could ruin your life. So I think focus is so essential within those sort of spaces. And I think education as well. Um, That can, I mean, education is not as popularized within such communities or at least my community. But if you can, I think that should be your ticket out of poverty or at least your ticket to better things. Um, and, and yeah, it's so hard because those sort of communities and that's all you ever see, basically, that's all you think your future is limitless or limited. Yeah. Limited. Whereas it's not, there's a bigger world out there. And I think you need to focus on those aspects of knowing yourself, understanding what it is that you want and how exactly you can work for it. If it means you just want to get out of such a community, work towards that. But I think that with education, you can never, ever go wrong. Um, Yeah. Mm, I 100% agree and I love that. Ah, thank you so much for sharing your journey. Your journey's been incredible. I can't believe that you're as young as you are. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your journey. And, you know, I love the work that you're doing and I wish you all the best in this thank space. You. This is, it's difficult. I'm, just me trying to digest the work that you do is, I feel like it's so heavy and difficult. So thank you for doing this work. Thank you so much for having me and. I definitely will continue the work. Um, I think just an aspect that I didn't really share was the aspect of, you know, obviously I'm in corporate now, Mm -hmm. but I think being firm and getting into such a space has helped me be okay with getting into corporate. So, for example, when I got into the corporate space, I made sure that they know who I am what I'm all about and what I want. Mm. Um, and as young as I am, you know, it, it, it made zero sense. I felt like, you know, I think after the interview, I was like, you're girl, you're brave. You're, <laughs> you're really brave. But I think I got into that space, making them aware of who I am and what exactly they're getting themselves into if they take me. <laughs> um, and I think, so with law, you kind of do your articles and you're doing rotation. So you get into different departments, you know, you do commercial, you do banking, you do tax, you do all of that stuff. And for the first rotation, they put me in public law, which is heavily related to the stuff that I do now. And I always made it clear to them, you're either going to put me in these sort of departments or you're just wasting my time because even if you put me, for example, in tax, I'm really not interested. <laughs> I'm really not interested. Yeah. It's just going to be a ticker box. You're wasting yeah. your time. <laughs> I want this. And this is the only reason why I'd come here. If not, then I'll go elsewhere. And I think that speaks to just being firm and understanding yourself. You know, sometimes some people may feel that is like, oh, you're risking your job and whatsoever. But I think sometimes we need to look at opportunities as rather also an opportunity for them to have you Mm. because you're a catch as well. Um, I think in majority of my interviews, I always make it clear as to who I am. And sometimes, yeah, I may have a bit of a big head here and there, but it always works to my advantage to say, guys, when I'm getting into your organization, you have an entire African Union affiliation, a UN affiliation. If you want me, this is what you will offer me and this is what you will give me. But, 
you know, obviously I'll also come to the table. I'm not just going to make demands. <laughs> yes, um, what you have to offer. Yeah. yeah. But it's not just one-sided. And I think mm. sometimes we get into these spaces thinking it's one-sided. I want a job. I'm so grateful. Need, yes. Mm. And you then now start settling. Whereas I feel like sometimes you need to come out to say, yes, I know I'm here. I apply because I want a job. I don't want to be unemployed and whatsoever. But in as much as I need you guys, you equally need me. Mm. You need me within your space because of what I have to bring. So make sure that your offer and whatsoever is good enough for me mm, mm-hmm, because definitely. after these two years, I'll leave and go offer my services <laughs> elsewhere. Um, yeah. One last, one last thing as well. You did mention that, you know, it is important who you have in your network and who you follow. How can our listeners get in touch with you and follow your work? Okay. So I'm on most social media. Um, so on Instagram, it's just Karabamukhonyana at Karabamukhonyana on Twitter, it's at K underscore Mkhonyana. The full Karam Mkhonyana couldn't fit. So <laughs> I had to settle. Um, and then LinkedIn as well. I think I'm Karam Mkhonyana everywhere. If you just search, yeah. And my DMs are always open. I always wanted to make that clear. Because I realize there's some people who DM me and like, oh, I can't believe you replied. And that mm. made me think... Maybe it's because when people get into spaces, they no longer become accessible to other people. And I'm, I always hope that, you know, one day when we all become famous, and maybe it's because you can't manage all the DMs, but I think it's important to still be the person that people on the ground can actually access. Mm. So my DMs are always open. I always respond if you need guidance, if you need advice, if you need contacts. I don't have money, so... Don't ask for money, but <laughs> but I definitely am willing to advise and guide and give you contacts if need be. And but all my DMs. So it's just LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm not on TikTok yet. Maybe I'll just join. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah. Also, my email. I'm also accessible through my email. Mm-hmm. Very open. It's also karabamukhonyan at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared here today. Guys, give her a follow. Reach out if you want to. Yeah. Thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for, you know, creating this platform. I think it's so essential. Um, Voice and representation is very key. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening to She Brigade. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend you think will enjoy it too. You can also share it on your social media and tag us at SheBrigade. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the show notes. We'd also love to hear your feedback, so feel free to email your questions or your suggestions to info at SheBrigade.com or DM us on Instagram or Twitter at SheBrigade. Until next time, bye.